Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Løkkeberg. Et af de spørgsmål, som vi har diskuteret rigtig meget herinde på avisen og er blevet ved med at diskutere, det er, er vi i Vesten i virkeligheden kujoner, når det kommer til Ukraine? Vi har massiv moralsk opbakning til dem. Vi har massiv moralsk modstand mod Rusland. Men vi har valgt en støtte til Ukraine, hvis præmis er, at ingen vestlige soldater må komme på jorden, og vi må ikke risikere en 3. verdenskrig. Det sidste, altså at vi ikke må risikere en 3. verdenskrig, kan man nærmest kalde for en moralsk forpligtelse over for menneskeheden. Men der er også den risiko, at man bruger et absolut argument til at forsvare relativt kujoneri. Det vil sige, kunne man gøre mere, give mere af os selv, for at hjælpe i en kamp, som ikke alene handler om ukrainernes frihed, men som også handler om at skabe en verden, hvor den slags invasioner ikke kan finde sted. Som Michael Ignatieff sagde tidligere på året, we cannot let him get away with it. Og spørgsmålet er, om det er blevet lidt for os at sige, ukrainerne må ikke få våben, der kan ramme ind i Rusland. Ukrainerne vil vi ikke lave en no-fly zone for, fordi så risikerer vi vores egen sikkerhed. Spørgsmålet er, om vores egen sikkerhed bliver overdrevet som argument, og støtten til Ukraine derfor bliver for lille. Det er som sagt et spørgsmål, der har stået på hele vejen under den her krig, og som vi bliver nødt til at blive ved med at konfrontere os selv med. Det spørgsmål var også et, vi tog op på Informationsstore Festival i Aarhus for nogle uger siden, og jeg kunne ikke forestille mig nogen bedre til at besvare lige præcis det spørgsmål, end den britisk-ukrainske forfatter og forsker Peter Pomerantsev. Jeg har talt med Peter Pomerantsev tidligere, som har den helt særlige historie, at han er født i Kiev under Sovjetunionen. Familien flygtede derfra, fordi hans far distribuerede ulovlig litteratur til Tyskland, inden de flygtede videre til Storbritannien. Pomerantsev vendte selv tilbage i 2000'erne til Rusland, efter Sovjetunionen var faldet, hvor han arbejdede i flere år med at lave tv i Rusland. Ud af sine erfaringer der skrev han bogen Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, som handler om det russiske propagandaapparat, og han skrev This is not propaganda fra 2019, som handler om, hvordan han så russernes strategi med at bearbejde befolkningen brede sig til vestlige regeringer også. Det vil sige, at Putin i stedet for at være en slags afvielse ude østpå, ifølge Pomerantsev var en slags avantgarde for noget, som siden blandt andet Trump bevestrede. Pomerantsev har skrevet en del essays i år, som vi her på Information har samlet i bogen Vi kan kun være fjender. Han har engageret sig voldsomt i ukrainernes kamp mod russerne. Det har han gjort på sine egne præmisser. Som forsker han rejst til Ukraine har indsamlet data om krigsforbrydelser. Han har interviewet Zelensky, han har skrevet som journalist artikler fra Ukraine, som skulle tydeliggøre for Vesten, hvad det egentlig er, der er på spil, og hvad det er for en pris, ukrainerne betaler. Så vi inviterede Peter Pomerantsev til Aarhus for at svare på alle de store og svære spørgsmål om krigen i Ukraine, vores forhold til Rusland, og ikke mindst den moralske kvalitet af vores egen indsats. Thank you so much, Peter, for coming here today. God fornøjelse. You know, I, I think for I think we all recognize that that this invasion of Ukraine is a defining moment for us here, and it's a defining moment for for Europe. 
How do we respond to that? For you personally, it's also been a defining moment, this conflict between Russia and, and, and Ukraine. You, you write in your new book that you, you became Ukrainian. You, weren't, you didn't originally think of yourself as Ukrainian, but in 2014 you became Ukrainian. Can you tell us about how, how this conflict between Russia and Ukraine shaped your own identity? That's, that's, look, all my books and all my writing is about identity at some level. And my books are about propaganda, but I'm interested in the relationship between propaganda and identity. That's what I'm interested in. Probably as an immigrant child, I'm very aware of the constructed nature of identities. But look, I'm, I'm a Londoner. I grew up in Britain. I was nine months old when my parents left. Um, and I grew up in a part of London, and I went to the European school Munich as well. So I'm very much part of the great European and British cosmopolitan projects, and that's my identity. But, but, but it's, and I always knew I was from Kiev. Um, all, my, all my relatives are from Ukraine. They're largely Jewish and Russian-speaking, um, even though bilingual as well, but Russian-speaking at home. Um, and so I was very aware of those different, different elements. I, it just really wasn't very important to me, frankly. It was quite annoying at, at school. I was always called the Russian. And I'd be like, well, actually, I'm from Kiev. And I was like, fuck it. I don't <laughs> like, so I just let it happen, which I think a lot of Russian-speaking Jewish Ukrainians did. I mean, there was part of the Ukrainian emigre community, which was very, very fiercely patriotic. They always fought for their identity. They had communities in New York, in the East Village, obsessed with language. We were never part of that. My father was a dissident, but he was arrested for uh, writing poetry in Russian and doing human rights rather than uh, for, for support for Ukrainian nationalism, which is a different, it was just a different type of arrest. Uh, it was much worse. If you were arrested as a Ukrainian nationalist, you got 15 years straight away. In my father's case, you get threatened with seven years, but you were usually allowed to leave. So I was always like, you know, I, I knew where I was from, but like there was so much laziness in the West about, oh, Kiev, that's part of Russia, this sort of stuff. And I, and I would just let it pass. And then in 14, and this war started in 2014, I remember being at a conference and saying, no, 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 I'm Ukrainian. You can't say I'm Russian anymore. You've got to start. It's more about us in the West. You've got to start talking about this properly. These are different countries with very complex histories, a bit like England and Ireland or England and Scotland but they're different countries and we have to start using language properly and, and recognizing that. And so in 14, it was just very, I just started pushing back and I was saying, look, if you're going to say I'm of British, of XX heritage, make sure you say I'm of Ukrainian because now it's a political statement. Now to say that I'm of Russian heritage is saying I don't believe in the Ukrainian political project. So, so it's more about us. It's not really about me. It's more <laughs> about us. But what I did start doing was start going to Ukraine a lot more. A lot of my research is in Ukraine from 2014, when I'm not writing books, I do a lot of sociological research to help improve media. I want media to be more responsive to audiences. Am I talking too fast, by the way? No, it's... Because no, no, no. I, I, I live in America, and a lot of the time they're like, what did he say? <laughs> like, okay, so no, I'll slow down. Um, and so I started doing a lot of research in Ukraine and, and working with Ukrainian media to really think about the connection between media and democracy, obviously something you must think about a lot. And that led me to do a lot of research. And there was this very interesting moment when I realized that a lot of the things that I thought private things about my family were actually part of Ukraine. So my mother's aesthetic taste, she's from Kiev, was completely informed by Kiev. Her taste in art, food, little things like how she sets the plates. I was like, oh, this is everywhere in Kiev. <laughs> and then my grandmother, she's from Kharkiv, and she had a very particular way of treating men, a slight kind of like 
it's a slight sort of like, I'm not going to look at you, but I know you're looking at me sort of flirtation. <laughs> and I thought, isn't my granny a bit of a coquette, even into her 60s? She was like this. I get to Kharkiv, every woman does this. I'm like, oh my God, this is like a Kharkiv thing. <laughs> and we can think about why they did it. You know, what, what's the history that made Kharkiv like that? Um, and then look, my grandfather's from Odessa. That's a very easy connection to make. You know, Odessa is sort of the prototype of the globalized port city but which needs a nation to survive in. It was very interesting going to Odessa, which is completely my sort of place, uh, a cosmopolitan town full of Greeks and Bulgarians and, and now Vietnamese and many others. But that paradox of a port city, a free city can only exist in a democratic country. And that relationship between Odessa and Ukraine is fascinating. Um, and then finding my father, who's from Chernivtsi, which is in the west of Ukraine, which is one of these old Austro-Hungarian cities that, that was like a prototype of Milan Kundera's idea of Mittel Europa, you know, the city where my father could still hear like five or six or seven languages in the street and retain some of that completely informed my father's writing. He's a writer, but also his idea of cosmopolitanism. So everything that I thought was private, like my dad's thing, my granny's thing, my mum's thing, my grandfather's thing, I was like, actually, this is rooted in, in these cultural conditions. And suddenly I realized, actually, I am part of this place. Um, you know, and that's, I don't really believe in roots. I'm not a tree. Huh. But I think one is poorer if one doesn't recognize the rivers that run into one. Uh, I'll go for rivers over trees. Um, and I just felt enriched by that. You know, I felt much richer. But look, at the end of the day, if I was Ukrainian-Ukrainian, then I'd have a Ukrainian passport and I'd be on the front like all my Ukrainian friends, which I probably feel quite bad that I'm not. But... At the end of the day, look, no, I'm a, I'm a Brit. I'm a Brit, I'm a Londoner, but I'm deeply, deeply enriched by understanding more about Ukraine. But I have the sensation that, that you've been very heavily engaged and almost that you felt an obligation to be part of this war against Russia or protection against Russia of, of Ukraine. You've been to Ukraine a lot. You've been writing about it. You've been counseling people. You've been advising. You've been very vocal about how much was at stake here. Uh, so I have the sensation that, that you're kind of doing whatever you can with your own means. So I, I think um, the main feeling when, you, when a war touches you personally is one of helplessness and impotence and despair, and that's what I feel most of the time. Uh, a lot of my friends, the main sociologist I worked with, who's older than me, 50, the main journalist I worked with, they tried not to enlist at the start. They tried to do humanitarian work, journalistic work, and they're all at the front now. These like people with like many PhDs who are just, as we speak, shooting things. Um, so I think, I think really that's what a lot of people do to deal with it. And that's probably not the best way for the Ukrainian state to use them, actually. But that's how you deal with it. So what have I been doing? I've been kind of working on several fronts. One of them is elevating understanding around war crimes in Ukraine. I created a project with um, Janine Di Giovanni, who's a very famous war reporter. Um, and what we're doing, we think is quite important. We're putting lawyers and journalists and other people who arrive first on war scenes, on the crimes on, on, on war crime scenes uh, first, putting them together with lawyers to make sure that they can gather evidence in a way that will be good for courts. Also working on a project with lawyers to see whether we can hold Russian propaganda legally accountable for the stuff they do. 
which is going to be a very hard thing to do. It's very hard to prove that propagandists are guilty of war crimes, but we think we have a case. So I've been working on that, which is about accountability, essentially, which I can help with. And then, you know, uh, doing the journalism, but, but I don't, maybe that helps, I don't know. Um, but then also thinking very hard about how can Ukraine and its allies communicate into Russia, because at the end of the day, as your resistance newspaper would have, you know, will, will know as its legacy, part of this war will be won by affecting a level of perception change inside of Russia. So thinking a lot about that, I worked in Russia for 10 years, so I feel I can help that way as well. We'll get back to what to do about Russia later, but I want to f uh, stick with Ukraine first, because I think a lot of discussions about this war tend to be primarily about Russia. And, and, and you, you know, when, when the invasion came in, in February this, this year, I think most people here, first of all, we, we don't know a lot about Ukraine. It's, it's better now. Maybe we knew Andrei Shevchenko, maybe we knew a couple of footballers, we knew Kiev, we knew Odessa, but we didn't know a lot about Ukraine. And it, I think it goes for, for, a, for a lot of people. And I think most people were convinced that this is going to last a week or maybe two weeks. That, that Russia is going to take the country they cannot defend th themselves. Not that we don't sympathize with them, but we just thought that this grand power was too strong, which in hindsight is quite weird because we've seen the impotence of our own grand power in Afghanistan, Iraq, a lot of, a lot of different places. Mm. Uh, but you write in the book something that I found very interesting. You say, actually, we should not have been surprised by the level of resistance from the Ukrainian. We should not be surprised that they actually managed this incredible effort and they are where they are today. Why shouldn't we be surprised? So, as I say, I was doing a lot of social research, so focus groups, polling in Ukraine between 14 and 21, uh, non-stop, really. Uh, it was probably, probably like a good 50, 60% of my research. And what we found across Ukraine is this cultural resilience. Because it's a, a multi-colonized country, the Russians, the Soviets, the Hungarians, even the Czechs had an empire in a little bit of Ukraine. I mean, like, like this is like the space where even the Czechs get to have an empire. <laughs> Not a lot of people know the Czechs had an empire, but they did. I mean, going back, you know, Sweden has a huge role in there. It's always been the space where big colonizing powers come. And what's come through over centuries is the spirit of how do you survive against them. And that's in the myths of the Cossacks. Um, you know, the drone, you know, right now there are these amazing sort of boat drones that the Ukrainians are using. This is what the Cossacks did. You know, they had essentially little boat drones in the 16th century that they'd send in against the Turks and the Russians. So, um, I mean, they weren't drones, but, you know, these kind of little ships that they used around the Dnipro and the Black Sea, they, did, they attacked Constantinople on little boats. You know, so this incredibly deep tradition of fighting the bad guy, fighting the big guy and very strong horizontal networks, so very weak institutions, which is when people say it's weak, they look to the institutions, wrong thing to look at. It's a very, a very imperialistic way to look at a society. Very, very strong horizontal ones, whether that's church, mafia, football hooligans, uh, business associations. Those things were very, very strongly found, and incredible culture of resistance, um, and, help, and working with each other. And that's what we found in this war. What's amazing about this war, it's the army plus civil society, plus business, plus families. I mean, they fight like a family. And that has been remarkable, firstly. The second one is, and that's what we'd found. So I wasn't surprised. The other one, look, the Ukrainians in the Soviet Union were a bit like the Scots in England. They were always considered the best fighters, the best generals, the best Russian... Um, Military equipment is made in Ukraine. 
I mean, this is this was like the, the cruelty of it all. Like their best missiles are made in Ukraine. So they've always had amazing factories producing very, very high quality weapons, not necessarily all the weapons they need. But what I'm saying is they actually have a very strong military infrastructure and tradition, which, because they hadn't fought a war for like 75 years, had atrophied. But it was there. You know, the skeleton of military discipline and military tradition was there. It just needed sort of a muscle, muscle being built onto it. So that's one half. The other half, though, I mean, there are two sides in this fight. And, um, you know, my first book was called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. It was about this illusory Russian political model where you have fake elections and fake politics. And we had a fake president for a while there. <laughs> Dmitry Medvedev, between 2008 and 12, was a fake president, you know. <laughs> and it turned out the army was fake as well. So the Russians had got good at doing special operations um, like Crimea. They got very good at throwing barrel bombs and chemical weapons onto civilians like they did in Syria. Brilliant at that. I mean, if you want to go and bomb a hospital, the Russians are really good at that. Top. Not really funny, is it? Uh, but um, but um, it turned out their army was just, it's a disaster. And it's funny, I was talking, the night before the invasion, I was talking to Vladimir Milov, who's a Russian opposition politician. We were having dinner in New York. And like most Russians, he thought there's no way Putin would invade because he was like, look, Putin knows his army is just drunk guys who don't know how to fight. And like, he was like, they'd done an order to the army. They knew the real things going on. And he's like, Putin's not an idiot. He knows his own army. <laughs> and like, I don't think he knew his own army. I think he must have believed his own propaganda. Um, so it's two, it's two elements. It's one, the Ukrainians fight. It's two, the Russians don't know how to fight. So between those two things, you've got this situation. I think in the beginning of the war here, again, our ignorance, looking back, was, was alarming. We were a little scared that they picked an actor for president. Because there was all we knew about Zelensky at the time. That, that they'd chosen someone from a reality TV show. And we'd see how that played out in America. That was what we knew about Zelensky. And then I remember there was a headline that they picked an actor for president. And now he's going to lead them in, into war. So we thought at the time that he wouldn't be good at it. Mm. We, we thought that that would turn out to be a disastrous choice by, by, by the Ukrainian. Ten, nine, ten months later, we could see that he's been absolutely formidable. And he's probably the most admired leader globally here in Denmark. You've met with him. You've made in, in interviews with him. What is it that he has done, Zelensky? So, so I, I was exactly the same. <laughs> and many Ukrainians were, frankly. <laughs> and the idea is like, this is unserious. Why are we doing something unserious during a time of, you know, heightened conflict? And when you meet him, he is very much an actor from the Stanislavski school. When he talks to you, he's always like looking for contact. <laughs> you know, the way like, like, it's all about finding the hearts, you know, which is... I went to film school in Moscow. It's like a very big method acting thing. He's always <laughs> looking for this connection. So very much, I mean, I'm, re I mean, I'm desperate for approval and you know, all the vulnerabilities that actors have. I think our problem, and my problem as well, is we completely underestimate the depth and the importance of, of the profession. An actor is someone who understands truth and understands deep psychological truth. Hmm. If you're going to act, you really think about life death, meaning, you know, you can't act superficially. It's the best sociology in the world because you're constantly thinking about audiences. So he, was his, he came to fame doing this sort of comedy tours. Um, 
So he knew exactly what made normal people laugh in villages. This is his thing. His thing was always, I know Ukrainians better than anyone else. So I used to make 7 p.m. entertainment television, best sociology ever. So you know your audiences, you really know them. You know, you understand what matters to people, you understand psychological depth, you understand meaning, and um, you're really good at charming people. So, plus he was also, also, he's also a very successful businessman. I mean, he had a production company that was very, 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 very successful. So he knew business, he knows how to organize a team. You know, he's a, a successful, unlike Trump, actually, a successful entertainment businessman, starting with nothing, who built it up to be, he's not a billionaire, but he's, he's a multimillionaire, you know, just from being, making TV shows. So I think we just completely, I just feel really guilty towards actors when we say this. <laughs> like, why, why wouldn't we think that acting is a brilliant, really deep profession that teaches you incredibly important things uh, about life? Why do we think it's superficial? Also, he, like, his comedy was, was political. So he understood politics. He, he got politics. <laughs> Comedy's quite good, actually. I mean, uh, ish. But um, so... <laughs> Yeah, we should stop being horrible about actors. <laughs> Acting is a really serious profession. And, you know, Reagan, you may not like his economic policies, but damn, he was good at what he did. So, so yeah, let's, let's just start respecting actors a bit more. <laughs> I was, I was <laughs> it's actually businessmen who've turned out to be morons, <laughs> like when it comes to politics, like Musk, Trump. I mean, these, these guys are embarrassments. <laughs> I was also impressed by the way that he managed to address himself to the Western countries, like reminding them of their own glorious past that uh, he came to Denmark and spoke about the resistance movement against the Germans. And, and people were reminded, oh, we have some, we have some grandeur in our, in our history. And then he said, well, you won't help us fight with your own soldiers. And people felt very bad. And then he said, but you could give us some weapon and some money. Yeah, weapon and money. We weapon and money. And it seemed like he could do that all over, reminding us of, uh, of a pride that we almost lost and reminding of how much was at stake that we almost gave up fighting for, which you also see with regards to the independence we created with Russia and how this free trade regime undermined our values. So he kind of reinvigorated the, the, the West as well. But what, what, I, what I'm still curious about is, what do you think of, 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 uh, of the general Western support for Ukraine? Are we just letting them fight for our values? Are we leading a war by proxy that we should engage in our, ourselves? Or are we doing the morally right thing, letting them fight, supporting them with, with money and weapons? I know it's a difficult question, but it's a pressing one. So, okay, let's talk, let's talk about the weapons and the stuff in Ukraine first, and then we'll talk about the framing, because I, I agree, I think we're framing this war slightly wrong. Um, on the weapons, so, look, we had this tragedy the other day. Uh, the investigation is ongoing, but most probably, you know, a Ukrainian missile misfired or hit a Russian missile, and it fell into Poland, and horribly, two Polish farmers died. The only reaction for that for me is Poland, which has really good, nice, new NATO air defense systems, should park it along the border and protect as much of Ukraine's sky as possible. I mean, that is the only... If we want to keep being secure, I think we've got to get closer to the conflict. The next thing, though, is... There was a very good article by Zeluzhny, the head of the army, the Ukrainian army, saying, wh wh when does this stop? And it stops when there's parity. It stops when Russia is deterred. The only way Russia becomes deterred, taking nuclear off the thing for the moment, is when the Ukrainians have missiles that can hit Moscow. 
At the moment, our policy is we do not give the Ukrainians any missiles that can hit Russia. That is prolonging the war. I think Zelushny is completely right. It stops when there's deterrence. It stops when, when they have, look, 100 missiles a day being thrown into Ukraine from Russia. Until Ukraine has 100 missiles it can throw back, they'll keep on doing it. As long as they can keep on doing it, they will keep on doing it. So we should, we, I think in the interest of peace, we should be giving Ukraine much more attack minded weapons. They're not going to, they don't want to like go and fight Russia more than they have to. You know, they're not crazy. They're not like, you know, warmongering against Russia. They just need a deterrence. We took away that deterrence with the Budapest Memorandum. We forced them to give up their nuclear weapons. We pushed them into it. We really did create this disaster. So we have so much responsibility. Um, that's the Budapest Memorandum in 94 when the West forced Ukraine to give up its nuclear weapons in return for security guarantees that we then put in the bin. So we, we bear a huge responsibility. Um, so that's on the Ukraine bit and the weapons bit. Yes, I think we have to, you know, at the moment it's like we're having like non-penetrative sex with Ukraine. I think we just need to like go a little bit further. This is ridiculous, you, <laughs> yeah. know? you know. We're doing everything, but like, you know, let's do it properly if we're serious about defending them. So that's that bit. Again, I'm not saying boots on the ground. I'm not saying any NATO soldiers in Ukraine. I know that's a red line that we will never cross, but we can do a lot more on the weapons. So that's the first thing. How we're framing it, I agree. Look, I think we want to see this because it's easier morally and safer to see this as evil, a war quite far away between the evil Sauron and the nice little hobbits, which it is. It is a, an imperial war where Russia is trying to reassert its imperial rights and Ukraine is trying to fight it off. But it's more than that. I mean, Putin is very open about this. He sees this as a breakthrough in the history of the world. They want to reorientate the world into where, what they think it should be, which is a world where human rights and humanitarian wars and war don't matter, which is why they've been strategically bombing civilians in every war they go into to show that it doesn't matter, where states' multilateralism is dead, where only big states decide what small states do, because that is the natural way of things. Their argument is the last 70 years were an aberration. They were some sort of weird freak of history. Yeah? Obviously, America, Russia, China, and a little bit Berlin decide the world. Obviously, Eastern European goes to Russia. Obviously, Western Europe goes to America. Obviously. And everything else is a lie. We have this illusion the EU exists. When they say that they think that we're a colony of America, that's how they see it. That's how they see the world. And they want to see a world where this little fragile little attempt at some sort of justice and some sort of attempt at rules is, is thrown in the bin because it's irritating to them. And Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and America, they're happy for America to be one of the gang, set the agenda. What they really hate is the EU, with a deep loathing, because that is actually a project that is a complete affront. They were very happy with Trump in charge. Yeah, let's, America will be like us. Big guys with no rules throwing their weight around. We, we understand Trump. They actually quite liked W. They thought W. Bush was all right as well. Yeah, yeah, he's showing the truth. This is what it's like. Um, and that's what they're saying. That's what they want to achieve. And they're open about this. They see this as a pivotal moment where they push into the 21st century they want. And you can see China and Saudi Arabia and Iran, sadly India, South Africa, all the countries that are not quite sure which way the 21st century will go, just sitting there going, well, let's see what the democratic order has got in it. Maybe the Russians are right. It might well, it's a very self-destructive mission because the Russians are self-destructive for many reasons. But that's what they're going for. 
and it's completely undecided about how that larger fight goes. Now, in order for us to start recognizing that reality, we kind of have to recognize that we're, well, I don't like the word war because it's scary, but um, that we are involved in endless special operations now <laughs> against Russia and China. <laughs> this is the new world we're going to live in. It's not going to be the fluffy globalization that Thomas Friedman at the New York Times talked about. No, the world is flat and all that shit. No, it's going to be you know, what some colleagues of mine at Johns Hopkins University called weaponized interdependence. You know, we see it already, the way Russia is using energy to make your energy bills more expensive, shutting down the grain to starve the global south, push up prices in, uh, in America. You know, it's this weird world where we're all interconnected, and now the Russians and the Chinas will start using that and using that and using that. And we have to wake up. That's just the 21st century. That's, that's, how, that's what they want to do and how they're going to play it. And I worry that we, we haven't recognized that. We haven't taken it on board. It's all going to get very messy and very nasty. And I'm not saying Danish troops will have to die tomorrow or anything like that. But that's the world we're going to have to live with. And we don't really have the institutions for that. Whose job is it to think about this? We don't really have the doctrines for that. I don't think as societies we're ready for the sacrifices. It's going to be a hell of a lot more of these really bumpy moments when a Russia or a China tries to blackmail us. So we just have to like get up to speed a little bit because I think there's going to be a lot more of this. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, get ready. <laughs> <laughs> I was teaching the other day at the business school in Copenhagen, and I was telling them about the story from Hegel about the master and the slave. The master and the two people they meet on the battlefield, one is afraid to die, and the other one is not afraid to die. The one who's not afraid to die wins the battle, and he becomes the master, and the other one becomes the slave. So I, t I tell the students this, and then there's a girl who raises her hand and says, oh, that's a bit like us and Putin. That, that we're so afraid of him. We're so afraid of what he might do. Uh, so, we, so we keep being dominated. And she said, well, every time Ukraine advances, we become a little more scared. We're a little more scared. What can he do? Will he become more, will he become more, more desperate? Do you share the student's analysis that, that we are still dominated by a fear of, of, of Putin in our entire set of actions? So I completely agree, and that's obviously happening, and the Russians use it. Every time Ukraine advances, they start going nuclear, and everyone's like, oh. Um, which is an understandable thing to do. I think they know Biden very well. Biden is a child of the Cold War, genuinely, personally petrified of nuclear war. So when they do the nuclear thing, it's general, causing panic. It's very, they, they're very good at sort of doing character analyses of individual politicians. That's the KGB approach to, to psychological manipulation. They do it person by person, and they know this is Biden's Achilles heel. Uh, everyone knows, in DC knows this about Biden. He's a classic child of the Cold War, completely petrified by the idea of nuclear war. But let's take it further. I think your student's right, but let's go further. This, you know, I was reading Eric Fromm on the way here, uh, and it's about sadomasochism, and how the Nazi political psychology was based on sadomasochism, in the sense that the people who will yearn towards the Nazis, and every, each of us, many people did, um, despite the brave resistance of the Danes, of course. Um, <laughs> is it true about the king riding about on his bicycle? No. Okay. Uh, there's a very long version and a very short version, but you deserve the truth. No, it's not true. Okay. But it's the product of very efficient Danish propaganda. I was going to say, it's like, like <laughs> it's even a Russian that. song like, Kapi Karalia. It's just like you grow up with this song and... 
Okay, what, what a disappointment. Um, so, uh, yeah, sadomasochism. So, um, <laughs> so Fromm's idea is, is that, you know, a lot of people can't deal with the responsibility and freedom, and they yearn to be submissive. They want to give themselves up to the leader because it, you know, absolves them of the weight of freedom. And also they feel they have a little agency. They can feel big and strong through Putin or the other guy, uh, whichever guy that is, it's usually guys. So I also wonder whether even in that fear, that is a little bit of that authoritarian unconscious in us, you know, where sort of like even in that fear, there's a pleasure of submission. Oh, he's so big and scary. Um, so, you know, we shouldn't think that our own authoritarian you know, I know they've largely been cured out of European political culture, apart from Italy, Hungary, half of Britain, most of France, but generally cured <laughs> out of European political psychology and culture, but it's still there. I think there's a bit of an appeal. And even though we talk about it negatively, like, oh, he's so terrible, like, so big and terrible and scary. <laughs> so I don't know, I think, I, think, I think, and for many it's open, I mean, for a Salvini, or Orban, they just admire him openly. But I, I worry about that. Even in the terror, there is actually a pleasure. Um, and Ukraine is, Ukraine is, you know, making all these words like freedom and sovereignty real. So, uh, so you're not personally scared? Of who? Of Putin. Of, the, of the, this, that Ukraine is advancing, he's being humiliated, and there's a great chapter on that in the book, actually, about... Oh, God, no. No, uh, no, I'm, not scared, no. no I'm not scared. I think, I think we should be pushing much harder. I think he's, he's messed up, just in a very cold way. The leader has messed up. He miscalculated. For the... What we should really be pushing much harder and what, what we're not doing well enough is really pushing an informational agenda into Russia where we really make clear one message. Your leader has miscalculated and has led you into a cul-de-sac. And the political risks of sticking with him are now bigger than the political risks of breaking with him. The conversation in Moscow is only one conversation. Forget about the propaganda. Everybody hates him. He's led so many bits of society into a very bad place. There is only one thing people talk about, the people who matter. Is the risk of breaking with him bigger than the risk of sticking with him. That's the only calculation people have. And at the moment, because we're not pushing anything as hard as we should, they're kind of going, actually, it's riskier to break with him. Yeah? Because we're surviving sanctions. We're getting around this. The war will end, let's say, in summer, everybody says. Then we flip a couple of elections. Trump comes back. Let's see what happens in 24. Let's stick with him. Because the risk of breaking is big. I mean, you will come and you will get shot. So... You know, that's where we are, and we should be doing a much better job of really pushing the sense that, no, it doesn't matter who comes to power on 24. America is going to stay the course. No, it doesn't matter that, you know, it doesn't matter what Orban says. Hungary is a debtor country and makes no serious policymaking. We should be just much harder, much harder in our, in our, that we're resolute, much harder this for the long term, much clearer about the future Russia faces, that there is no way back. And we're, not, we're, not, we're really not communicating that. Biden hasn't given one speech to the Russian people or to Russian elites. Not one. Reagan was doing it all the time. So I think we're really failing on the information policy front uh, and not following up on our sort of economic, military, and diplomatic policies. Um, what we need towards Russia is a perception change that leads to a change in political calculation. That's all it is. 
it's not regime change. This is all this is all you know, fun and games for 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 newspaper columnists. This is nonsense. Um, if you want me to write a column on it, I will. But, I mean, like, but it's just it's nonsense. I mean, the Russians struggle with regime change in Russia. The idea we can do it is ridiculous. What we what we have a duty to is to be much much more resolute in our in our communication. Um, hopefully, that'll speed up the change in political calculation. And what that results in, Putin backs down, changes his mind. He's done it before. Putin retires and, you know, somebody else takes over. We have a Kostunitsa-like figure. There's so many choices that they have, but they've got to realize, as a political culture, we've hit a dead end. And they don't quite realize that yet. And it's like ours, the sadomasic picture of Putin kind of refrains us from analyzing that situation so I have one last question for you because does we're it? Gonna, yeah go elaborate what does that mean that was no but I think that we we think that if we damage him then then he becomes more dangerous for us so where whenever we advance or they advance on behalf of us we become more scared and I don't see a lot of public discussion about how to influence the Russian people. What are the channels? What are the ways of communicating with them? I think there's a sense that Putin in power is very dangerous, but, but Putin out of power will be very dangerous as well. He might, yeah. he might not be out of power. I don't think we can read that. Uh, all you have to say, here's our policies towards you. Here's the reality you're facing. They can go, it's a very mature political society, actually. They can go make their political calculations. Putin could put on a different mask tomorrow and release the doves of peace over the Kremlin with Olaf Scholz. He will turn like that if he thinks that's what's necessary. That's not our business. Our business is making sure the policies that we have are properly communicated. How they then, the configuration they choose is really up to them. And I would not overestimate what we can do in terms of like, you know, changing things in Russia or whatever. I mean, it's, it's, this is, if it's going to fall apart, it's going to fall apart, not because of us. Perfect. I have one last question, which is, we, we started with, with Ukraine and how little we knew about Ukraine, how little you yourself uh, actually knew. Is it not fair to say at this point after, after war since 2014, escalated war since, since February, that if the goal of Putin was to annihilate Ukraine, deny it its right to exist, that there is a moral victory here, that, that Ukraine is actually being recognized and admired all over the world as a sovereign state, as a state that has the right to exist, and the Ukrainian people are being admired for their ability f- to fight for something that we all believe in. So what's, that, what's that line in, in, uh, in Faust? Ich bin die Stärke, die immer das Böse will, aber immer das Gut tut. No, no, I am the force that always wills evil, but ends up doing good. I certainly don't think that Putin can do good, but you're right. Um, this is like the devil tries to destroy everything and ends up bringing out the best in in, in all of us. Thank you, Peter Pomerantsev, for coming here. Det var så min samtale fra Aarhus med Peter Pomerantsev. Jeg vil gentage et bogen, vi kan kun være fjender. Essays om Rusland og Ukraine som er udkommet på informationsforlag, at den kan købes på informationsbutik. Hvis man går ind på vores hjemmeside og klikker ned på butikken, så kan man finde det. Og det er ikke bare en suveræn julegave. Det er også en suveræn gave, man kan give sig selv, for ligesom gennem nogle vidunderlige læsninger, at komme ind i den ukrainske virkelighed og ind i hovedet på vores egen dilemma og konfrontere os selv med det, der er svært. Det var så denne uges ekstraordinære samtale med Peter Pomerantse fra Aarhus, som skulle konfrontere os 
med krigens moralske dilemmaer vække os af tendensen til at blive kujoner i vores selvgode moralske opbakning til krigen i Ukraine. I næste uge, der taler jeg med eksilaktivisten Mariam Al-Kavaya, hvis far sidder fængslet i Bahrain, og som der selv er udstedt arrestordre på i Bahrain, og som nu kæmper for menneskerettigheder i Mellemøsten, for kvinders rettigheder og mod undertrykkende regimer overalt i verden fra sin base her i Danmark. Vi taler om status som eksil, forkæmper, status på hendes kampe og på, hvordan hun ser hele det drama, der udspiller sig i Iran, i Mellemøsten og stadigvæk i Bahrain. Den her uges udsendelse var som alle andre udgaver af langsomme samtaler klippet sammen af vores vidunderlige venner hjælper, Anne Pilgaard Petersen. I er også vidunderlige for, at I bliver ved med at lytte med. Jeg håber, vi høres ved. Tak for nu.